the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest in this edition of the program. He's Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. He co-hosts Everyday Relationships and is the president and founder of the Smalley Relationship Center. You can get more information on the web in addition to information about his more than 40 books on the topic at SmalleyMarriage.com. That's SmalleyMarriage.com. Dr. Smalley, just before the break, we were talking about the need to to kind of step back from the conflict instead of just trying to pile through, because that piling through process often means just making a lot of noise, uh, working a lot, very hard to be heard, but not really hearing. Right. Um, and you made mention, I found it fascinating, to, toward the end of the last segment about the Chinese character for hearing that has to do with both open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. So I guess it's kind of pulling back, moving into neutral corners, so to speak, and taking a it's amazing how many arguments will will suddenly build up and gain momentum, and that train is heading down the track with with no brakes. When we take a moment to step back and really ask ourselves the question, "What is this all about?" We either find out that there's a whole lot to do about nothing, or that it's connected to some other hurt or pain that happened in our life that that might have just been sort of reactivated by something that our spouse did or said. That's right. That's right, and that's why I, I'm, I'm telling people that, that usually it's not that we can't communicate, that we've got to learn some new communication method. I'm telling you, the problem of why we have a hard time communicating is when your heart closes, you've got these buttons that are all stirred up, and you're frustrated, you're shut down, you're now in a reaction mode, and that's why the, the, the biggest, most important step in learning how to communicate through conflict is you dealing with you. And you can't do that in the presence of your spouse. You really do need to step back. And, and that's why I always tell people when you're sort of in this timeout spot, what you're trying to do is, one, there, there is power in putting a name to how you're feeling. And again, when we're in the middle of a conflict, we're not even able to think about how am I feeling right now and put a word to that. And, and yet there's research that was done that showed that when, in the middle of an argument, when people separate and they, and they think through, okay, what is it that I'm feeling right now? I'm feeling, you know, devalued, disrespected, uh, uh, not good enough, like a failure. I mean, when you put a word to how you're feeling, it, it physiologically calms you down. It, 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 they see on these, these brain scans to where the, the amygdala, which is your fight-or-flight center, it's kind of the emotional part of your brain, brain is all lit up. When you identify how you feel, the, the brain scans show that, that all of a sudden that information moves to the prefrontal cortexes, which is how, where you make good decisions. Mm. And so even, even the act of simply going, all right, I'm separated now, I'm on my own, what, what, yeah, what, how do I feel? What is, what's the word that I would use? It just, it has tremendous power. It's that simple. And then I, I think as Christians, what's so cool is that we take then those emotions to the Lord and we're asking for His truth. What is true about me? Is it true that I'm a failure? 
Is it true that I'm being disrespected? What's true about my wife? You know, and, and, I, and I love that, that, that so, I think there's so many verses that, that talk about how, 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 you know, God is truth, that he gives us the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth will lead us to all truth. You know, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what I, I love. You, when you're then able to do that, you now can come back in and just do what you were born to do, which is you can talk through things with your spouse when you're calmed down and your heart's open. And you know, it really at the end of the, that simple. And at the end of the day, reopening those lines of communication or sometimes establishing them for the first time, as much as that seems to be uh, particularly intimidating, particularly for us guys that don't do a real good, good job emoting, uh, and we, we, we get very intimidated by this idea in that sense that, well, my wife does all the talking and I do all the listening, things of that sort. You've put together a list of five daily relational moments that I think, Dr. Smalley, really go a long way toward teaching us just how easy it can be to communicate at that level so that the needs are getting met by, by both sides of the, of the couple. Take a moment, if you would, in the, the four, three or four minutes that we have left in our conversation. Just walk us through, if you would, these five daily important relational moments. Absolutely. You know, I, and, and, and why I think these moments are so important is that I think you could you could kind of boil everything down to doing this. If you want to have a great marriage, you need to, one, learn how to manage conflict well. But then on the other hand, you've got to learn how to invest, proactively invest in your marriage every day. Marriage doesn't have cruise control. You can't set a setting and think it's going to be okay. So as long as you're managing conflict, investing in your marriage, I mean, I'm telling you, you're going to have a good marriage. And I think one of the best ways to invest in your marriage Instead of adding all kinds of new things to your already busy plate, you know, because, Craig, I, I see that, that so many people are just we're so busy, exhausted, worn out, too much going on, overflowing plate, that when I tell people, hey, instead of adding, you know, five more things you need to do now for your marriage, what if we just looked at what's going on every day and take advantage of those, use those everyday moments to strengthen your marriage? For example, every day you're going to leave, leave the house. You know, during the work week. How you choose to leave your home can either strengthen your marriage or take away from your marriage. And, and, and what we know is if you take a moment and just, you know, let's say you, you pray for your spouse, you encourage them, and, and, and give each other a kiss goodbye, that right there, you have strengthened your marriage. That should take no more than 10 seconds. See, you're not adding something else. You will leave the house. How you choose to leave can, can strengthen your marriage. You're going to return home. You know, you, how you come home and re-enter your house in the evening can be used to strengthen your marriage or not. So when I come in, do I beeline for the TV? Do I beeline for the kids? Or do I walk up to my wife and say, hey, great to see you. You know, love you. Give her a kiss. Can't wait to spend time with you tonight. You mean, just something that simple. Again, not at, you don't add anything. You're going to walk into your home. Just walk in, <laughs> into your home in a way going to strengthen your marriage every you're going to fall asleep at some point how you say good night to your spouse can strengthen your marriage simply taking 30 seconds to pray for your spouse to thank him or her for something they did throughout the day that you appreciated thanks for hey picking up my dry cleaning today that was a big help i mean you see what i'm saying it's just it's it's identifying some key moments you know during the day as we're gone you know can i not send a quick little text message to my wife. I mean, I'm going to be gone. Why not just send her a text message and, and just tell her I love you thinking about her. 
I actually did this the other day and accidentally, I mean, I got into sort of this, this crazy little message to my wife, sent it to my boss <laughs> by mistake. And so he texts me back going, please tell me this was meant for your yeah, wife. I love you thinking about you. Absolutely. <laughs> said, no, it was for you, but uh, that made our meeting awkward. But anyway, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? I mean, there, there are moments. You know, for you, the moment might be um, we're, we're taking our kids to their sporting practice. You know, well, can you use that to, to ask each other questions? You can listen to the radio. You can do a bunch of stuff. You can be on the phone. Or we can ask each other. Just some some great questions. Hey, you know what? You know how today go? How are you feeling? How are things going between you and the kids? You know what's one thing God's teaching you as a plate? You see, there there are moments that go on that I think most of us just let these moments go by, and 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 let's take those back and use them as things that can really strengthen our marriage. And of course, the irony is it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a very little minimal amount of effort. It's simply giving a greater sense of importance to our spouse, to a sense of honoring them and valuing them. What's the old saying? It's, you know, it's the little things in life that count. Right. And it would be amazing to see how far. And I would just, I want to challenge both the ladies and the men in the audience. Try it. Oh, you don't understand how difficult things are in my marriage right now. Purpose in your heart today to start tomorrow. When you get up in the morning, compliment your spouse. Honey, I'm glad that uh, you're my spouse. I hope you have a great day. Um, speak words of encouragement into their life as, you know, your husband is going off and you know he's got the big meeting today. Uh, say some words of encouragement. Stop at the door for a minute, guys, before you're leaving and saying, Honey, I know it takes a lot of time and energy to, to maintain this household. I know you've got a big agenda today. You've got to take the kids to soccer practice and you've got a doctor's appointment. You've got to go shopping and all these things. I just want to let you know I value you and I recognize and appreciate the hard work that you do in creating such a loving home for us. Wow, how far that will go. And then, as Dr. Smalley points out, look, even the guys, we got time to check the box scores in the middle of the day. Send a quick text. Try not to send it to your boss, though. <laughs> and, let, and let your spouse know, thinking of you, babe, I hope you're having a great day. Can't wait to see you tonight. When you arrive back home, pause for a moment. You realize that your spouse, if she's been home all day, uh, maybe young kids in your family, she's been really deprived of any adult communication. She's, she's eager to connect with you. You, on the other hand, you've been out in the working world all day long. You don't want another conversation. Find a moment, if you can, between the two of you to just acknowledge each other and each other's needs for a moment. And then, finally, as you end the day, uh, to show a sense of gratitude and appreciation, a moment in prayer together. And if you implement these steps, I think you'll see an amazing turnabout in your marriage relationship. Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. More information, too, on the web at his website, smalleymarriage.com. And uh, Dr. Smalley, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, Craig, my pleasure. Thanks for all that you're doing to encourage marriage. You bet. Keep up the good work on your end as well. There's Dr. Greg Smalley from Focus on the Family. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat... The German news agency, Transocean, said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade 
toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Bob Trout and Edward R. Morrow, respectively, there of CBS News, from a broadcast dating back 67 years. And turn our memories back toward that important battle that was really the beginning of the end, certainly, of World War II in Europe. Um, And it's amazing because if we think about the ensuing years that have passed, imagine for a moment the fact that most of the boys, and many of them were just that, 17, 18-year-old boys, that landed on beaches with names like Utah and Normandy uh, on that date back in 1944, that many of them today would be in their late 80s. This, as um, Tom Brokaw called it, indeed, America's greatest generation, who saw some of the most difficult times, built some of the greatest character, to be sure, of any generation. And as we are losing contact with these brave men and women, day by day is the clock ticks down. I think it's important to be reminded of the tremendous sacrifices that they made for all of us. Much of that takes place inside the pages of a book by my next guest. The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. And joining me tonight on the program is a young lady who certainly is a familiar voice to many of us. Uh, She is an award-winning journalist, three times over, in fact, receiving Emmy Awards. She has been a correspondent on um, such highly rated news programs as Fox News, MSNBC, and uh, currently with CBS, and um, is the author of this new book. And Rita Cosby, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. And, and Craig, I have a newsflash for you. Um, I just found out I made the New York Times bestseller list a few minutes ago. Well, congratulations! So you are the first one to know, aside from my father. You know, b- being a, being a journalist from way back, I always love a scoop, and so I'm I'm pleased to be able to scoop. Let me re- let me reiterate the introduction. And New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby. Oh, I'm so thrilled! And I'll just say, I literally just hung up the phone with my dad, Craig who is alive, as you talk about a lot of these guys in their 80s, my dad is 85, he was so choked up and so happy because you think about here is a guy who could not speak almost a word of English when he was saved by U.S. troops and said, I want to come to America because America is the greatest country in the world and came from, you know, Poland, was a teenager, thrust to war, comes to America. And for it to be on the bestseller list, my father is so touched and so humbled and so happy that people are learning about this part of history and and also learning about the comrades, many of whom did not make it back. You know, it's an amazing story because as much as we think about, you know, television channels like the Military Channel that are dedicated to the events of World War II and the books that are out there um, and, and so much material, and yet there are so many stories that have never been told and it's interesting because this this generation uniquely kind of kind of had that we went we did a job we came back and now we're moving on with life even in your own experience in the case of bringing your dad's story to print was one that you literally accidentally ran into oh absolutely and my father as you talked about never talked about this and to this day you could even tell when i just broke you know the news that we made the new york times bestseller list he was so humbled and so happy that this story and that the comrades are getting the recognition it's always about someone else it's never his story it's always i'm happy that the polish people and i'm happy that the american troops are getting the recognition and and that is endemic of that whole group that whole generation there's just this incredible dignity and in my father's case 
you know, this story, you know, I hope that people get it. First of all, for, for Father's Day, it is the perfect gift. And the information's on quiethero.org, quiethero.org. It's called Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past, because part of the proceeds, by the way, go to wounded troops and their families. So it goes to a great cause. But my father, you know, this is very much a bit of a love story, too, because my dad and I really did not know each other until a few years ago. And um, when I grew up, I knew my father went through war. I did not know what he went through. I remember seeing scars all over his body, Craig, when he was, you know, when he came back from Iran. And I was eight years old, and I remember this moment vividly. We were camping. He came back jogging, took his shirt off. He was drenched in sweat. And I remember all of a sudden he took his shirt off, and I saw these scars all over his arms and a hole in one of his arms. And I remember thinking, that doesn't look normal. And asking my mother, what happened to Dad? Did he get in a fight or something? You know, like a a curious child. And my mother said to me, I'll never forget this, she said, Rita, your father went through tough times growing up. We don't talk about it. Mm. And the door was closed. And then my father left the family one Christmas very abruptly. You know, I heard my parents arguing in the other room, and my dad said, I'm leaving. And I thought he was leaving work, and it turned out he was leaving us. And so I really did not have a father present in my life for decades. And I, you know, grew, you know, grew up on television, you know, with, and my mother was really my mother and my father. And here I was, you know, at the pinnacle of my career, you know, doing all this great stuff on television, and yet, you know, did not have a father present in my life. And I always wondered what happened to my dad and why he was so detached. And then suddenly my mother passed away. And in my mother's belongings, my brother and I found this old suitcase. And inside was essentially my father's life. It was a rusty POW tag. And then I emblazoned with the word Stalag 4B on it and a prisoner number. And then I found a red and white fighting Polish armband with blood and dirt all over it. And then I found a card that had code names. This person had this sort of secret life. And then I found a card of an ex-POW named Richard Kosobutsky. And when I saw this, Craig, I just wept. And it was this moment in my life And it wasn't that long ago. This was, you know, just about two years ago. And I sat there in the storage locker, and I said to myself, you know what, I have not had a father present. My father certainly made a lot of mistakes. You know, he left us, you know, high and dry. And my mother was devastated. We were devastated. And never understood what happened to my father emotionally, too. Or I could forgive this man, because clearly whatever pain I went through could not compare what he went through as a prisoner of war. You know, and that's the amazing part of this story, because for many that are familiar around the periphery of the history of World War II, and sadly even those numbers are, are, are dwindling, um, you know, we, we think of some of the early events that took place in Europe, the Anschluss, the annexation of, of uh, Austria, literally swallowing up with Czechoslovakia, but the linchpin, the implosion point was, in fact, the German invasion of Poland in September of 39. And, and, and you what know, it's the, interesting, Craig. My father was outside, saw the invasion, literally saw the invasion at the beginning of World War Two. And, and, and it's interesting because we, we look at the fall of Poland that took place so rapidly, and, of course, you know, we, we won't spend time tonight um, in our brief moments together, Rita, pointing fingers at how the, the French made promises that they did not keep, the British made promises that they the did Russians not keep, totally the Russia, the, and the Russians ended up becoming complicit with the Germans in 
swallowing up Poland. But the battle particularly for Poland and for Warsaw, and this, you know, we're left with the impression that the country surrendered inside of a week, but that really isn't true, particularly for that battle that took place in Warsaw. And your dad at the time, I understand, from your book, Rita, Quiet Hero, was a teenage resistance fighter there in Warsaw. Oh, and right in the throes of it. And and you obviously have a great sense of history, Craig. You know, and I, it's amazing when you hear these stories. And as you pointed out early on, this is a story that is rarely told. So often we hear about the American GIs and all of their incredible heroics, you know, which deserve to be told. And this is a story, a very unusual story, even for folks who know World War II quite well. You rarely hear such a deeply personal story of being in the inside of the Polish resistance. And in my father's case, he was 13 when World War II. He saw the planes hovering above, and his father thought it was an air show. And my dad said, no, I don't think that's an air show. And the next thing they know, the the bombs are dropping. And my father, at a very young age, decided to become a resistance fighter and became a very, apparently, you know, apparently a, a quite courageous one from the records and from other comrades who did survive. And my father was in some of the most brutal fights. I mean, you can imagine. And the stories of the resistance are incredible, of incredible heroics, and I think just utter patriotism. And, and, and it's so inspiring to know that, you know, here my dad, you know, here he is a teenager, and they had Molotov cocktails and sticks. At one point in their unit of 150 men, they had two guns, and yet they are charging the most vicious war machine in the world. And my father was fighting the Nazis for five and a half years. Think about it. Five and a half years with Molotov cocktails and sticks, basically. He was fighting a hundred yards from his house. And I think that's why they were such ferocious fighters and such incredible fighters. With anything they had, they were going to fight because they were fighting for survival of their country, survival of their family. And then ultimately, my father was captured. He was taken to a POW camp and didn't know if he was going to live another day and luckily escaped. And, you know, my favorite part of my dad's story, Craig, and I think this is, this is, a great reminder of who we are as Americans, because my father counts his blessings every day that he lives in the greatest country in the world. He escaped at 90 pounds and six feet tall. Can you imagine? And he's one of the more healthy guys. And he's in the woods. He's with fellow comrades who escaped with him. And there he is in the woods, and he looks up, and he sees a plane. And they think, okay, it's a German plane, and they die for the ditches. And then the plane comes by again, and they think, you know, they're in Germany. They're in the you know, middle of Nazi-controlled Germany. It's wartime. You know, you, you're, it's crazy in the camp. It's dangerous as heck in the camp. But you can imagine how scary it is outside of the camp, too. You know, I mean, what do you do? You're in Nazi-controlled territory. And suddenly they look up, and something was thrown out of the plane, and they just assumed it was a grenade, and they die for the ditches. And then they look up, and they see a star. And they realize that it's an American plane. And what was dropped out was a chocolate bar with a note wrapped around it, tied with a red ribbon. And the note said, Welcome. It's safe to walk now during daytime. There are no troops between you and our American lines. Mm. You have 15 miles to walk, and you're free. Let's pause at that point. We'll pick up the story around the corner. If you've just tuned in, our conversation tonight, saying this phrase for the first time on radio, New York Times best-selling author, Rita Cosby, a look at Quiet Hero. More information, by the way, on the book, and you can order it, too, online at quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of Rita's story and the story of her father as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. Welcome back to the program there. Edward R. Morrow from CBS describing his experience with the first American soldiers to walk into the German concentration camp at Buchenwald as it was liberated from the hands of the Nazis at the close of World War II. Welcome back to the program. With me tonight, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Let me pause for a moment at this point. Rita, because I have to wonder, you know, we, we think about this generation that, that said so little of their escapades, of the horror that they saw and experienced during World War II, unlike subsequent generations. Back at the time, we referred to it as shell-shocked for those that generally kind of seem to be uh, um, emotionally a bit uh, challenged by all of these experiences. Today, I suppose, uh, better educated, we might refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder. I would suspect from the moment you opened up that tattered, worn leather suitcase and, and real, realized the significance of the items that you were looking at, it, it must have answered a lot of questions for you about your dad and, and the challenges that took place in your family. Oh, it, it absolutely did, Craig. And, and when, I, when I saw this, I knew I had to call my dad. I knew I had to forgive him. And despite, you know, years of anger and confusion, too, you know, much of it was how could this man walk out and not be emotional, and as you talked about, being very emotionally void, and so it answered so many questions, and I reached out to my dad, I was, I was glad he was alive, I was glad he was ready to share his story, and he said, you know, I, I wasn't ready years ago, I have not talked about this in 65 years, he didn't even tell my mother. And so he said, you know, I think I'm ready to share this story if we can honor the troops who saved me and my comrades who didn't make it back. And I also feel you're an adult now, Rita. You know, it was too painful to share as a child, you know, to let you know then. And I think I'm ready. And that's why I tell everybody, too, I hope that this book inspires other people, too, because the most wonderful emails I have gotten, Craig, and, I ha- and my website is quiethero.org, quiethero.org, and I'd love to hear everybody's story because when I read them, and I read them, I, I am so personally moved. My father literally, you know, uh, went through an- enormous hurdles, and me and my father went through enormous hurdles together, and I feel like if we can reconcile, almost anybody can because it, it almost seemed insurmountable. And I've gotten so many beautiful emails from people who have written me and said, you know, I didn't. I wasn't talking to my dad for twenty or thirty years, and I wrote him a, uh, you know, wrote him in the book. Please, Dad, let's talk, and sent him a copy of your book. And now we're meeting for lunch tomorrow. Wow! And I've got, and you know, that that's the, that is, you know, the Lord working. That is, you know, that is that is a higher power by far. And I am so blessed that this book has been able to be a bridge builder for so many people, maybe even who haven't even encountered someone with war. The other thing that comes to mind is you talk about the title of this book. We think hero, uh, a word that we easily banty about these days to which we don't assign an awful lot of, of significance. And yet other words, too, that come to mind that, that unfold on inside the pages of your book, Quiet Hero, as, as your dad recounts the stories and talks about those that were responsible in, in rescuing him as he made his way, you know, escaped essentially there from, um, uh, from that Stalag. 
um, words like valor and honor and sacrifice, words that I, I think to certain degrees, Rita, have largely disappeared from the American lexicon, words that most people today just going about day-to-day life and business really don't understand or think about or under, understand or, or perhaps comprehend the significance of in relationship to what men like your dad went through, not just in, in Europe and dealing with the, the torture and horrors of Nazism, but then those from other countries like Australia and England and Canada and the United States that went to places like Europe to help liberate those people from the clutches of Nazism. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and when you talk about, you use the word valor, I think of one line that my father said, and, and I think it just epitomizes the integrity of, of not just my father, but, but the men who served with him. And by the way, there were women also fighting in the resistance, too, which is, which is interesting. It was one of the first times in history that women played a huge role in military operations because everybody was needed. You know, men, women, everybody was fighting. for. They were all fighting for their country. But my dad told me this great line, and this is at the age of 15. Think about, you know, it's amazing to think at the age of 15 now you see kids playing Nintendo or skateboarding, Craig, or doing whatever they're doing at 15. And my dad at the age of 15 could have been snuck out of the country. His mother said, I might be able to buy you out through the black market. I might be able to find a way to get you to, you know, Switzerland, a neutral country. And my father, who was in the resistance at this time, said to my mother, no. I am staying and fighting for my country. And he gave this great line. He said, I would rather die with friends than live with strangers. Mm. I am staying and fighting for my country. And you think about, you know, saying that at the age of 15, knowing that most likely you were going to die for your country because the odds were certainly against you. In my father's unit, 80% of the men did not survive. Wow. So you think about he knew he was going into a bloodbath. Well, and, and certainly, I mean, having having lived through initially the the, the bombing of Poland of Warsaw, uh, by the time the John, the Germans were done with their job there, eighty five percent of all the buildings in that city were completely destroyed. Oh, and, and if you look at the pictures from that, in fact, this is interesting. Where my father was fighting was in the old town part of Warsaw, and that's where some of the most ferocious and and I guess you know, uh, determined resistance fighters were. Now, would that, Rita, technically been considered uh, near or at or in even the uh, the so-called ghetto? Um, it was right near the ghetto, okay. literally right next to the ghetto. And in fact, my father was just about 100 yards or so from the ghetto wall, his home. I mean, that's how close it was. It was literally in that area, exactly. It was literally in that area. So that's where they were rounding up all the Jews. And by the way, my father was so supportive of those inside the ghetto. My father believed it didn't matter if you were Jewish or not Jewish. If you were a good person, my father wanted to help you and was willing to help those inside, even at the the price of his own life, if that's what it meant. Well, and it sounds like he he got a lot of that, obviously, from his parents, your grandparents, whom I understand you have never met, but uh, weren't they engaged in doing some stuff even kind of discreetly in the black market that were that was being used to assist people in the resistance? Yes, they were actually helping and they were giving food. They were doing tons of things to help those. And also my father's mother was a really incredible woman. And I think you, you talk about sort of where you learned your morals from. Hitler did not want anyone to practice religion, especially if you were inside or outside the ghetto. And if you were, they, they treated those outside of the ghetto horribly as well. Obviously those inside the ghetto were just you know, decimated, and it's, and I think it's unconscionable what happened. It's incredible and just horrific. And my father, outside, they were also brutalized. And if my father, at the age of 13, started writing anti, anti-Nazi symbols on the ghetto wall, 
Can you imagine this? And even though you think about it, it's kind of child's play, that was a death sentence in Poland. It didn't matter how old you were. If the Nazis had caught anybody writing anti-Nazi propaganda on the ghetto walls of all places, you, they, you were going to be killed. And they would go and like clean it off, and then my father would go back two days later and write another, you know, Hitler is a blank, or a swastika hanging like, from a gallows. And it was a complete insult to just infuriate them. And my, and my father's mother, at a, even in the height of it all, where she was not supposed to pray or practice religion, she still had a hidden altar in the basement of her apartment. And they had five bombed-out apartments that kept moving. But in each apartment, she kept a hidden altar. And everywhere, went down and prayed for my father's safety, prayed for the country's safety, prayed for those in the ghetto. And that was the kind of environment that my father grew up in. And I, and I do, I think it transcended into who he was as a fighter. There's another side of the story that I want to come to when we come back after a brief time out, Rita. Um, that's an amazing one. And that is that after all of these years, 60-something years, your dad being able to travel back and you were there with him i want to have you share what that phenomenal experience was like and if you've tuned in a bit late tonight we are visiting in this segment of the program with best-selling time new york times best-selling author i should say rita cosby the book is called quiet hero secrets from my father's past this is a great gift-giving idea whether you know of someone of that generation uh that can be honored through the stories in a book like this, um, a great Father's Day gift. As Rita mentioned, this is being used as a wonderful means of tearing down years of silence and and, and non-communication between families, um, younger kids that never understood why dad always seemed to be kind of detached in a way or, or, or cold emotionally. This book can not only be an eye-opener, but a relationship restorer, even as this experience has been for Rita and for her father. The book, again, Quiet Hero, available on the web at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation. New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program and uh, joining us for an extended segment here. uh, Rita Cosby has been gracious enough to remain with us. She, of course, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Uh, The book, by the way, available through her website at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. You know, there are so many amazing aspects to this story from the discovery of eventually what became opening of the truth of what your dad experienced um, during World War II um, as not only a prisoner of war, but as a resistance fighter. Um, But then, of course, that leading the gateway to really the restoration of your relationship with him after many, many years. You had the opportunity at one point, Rita, to go back, uh, to take your father back to Poland. What was that like? Oh, it, it was incredible. And you know what, what, what caused it was I gave him back these items that we found in this old tan tattered suitcase that we talked about earlier that my mother had left behind. And it turned out it was, again, his rusty POW tag and his fighting armband, the red and white fighting armband that was dirty and still had blood on it, so clearly had been worn. And I gave him back the suitcase and I surprised him and I said, I have something for you. And when I gave him back the suitcase, my dad just held on to these items, especially that red and white armband. And as it turns out, when he was fighting the Nazis, he was wearing all the, you know, they didn't have, this wasn't an organized army. This was the resistance. This was a bunch of ragtag citizen soldiers, teenagers. And literally, they would have to kill a Nazi to wear 
some clothes, and they wore, you know, they had, you know, rattered, you know, tattered clothes before that, would grab a Nazi uniform, and the only thing that would separate them from the Nazis was this armband, and it actually gave the resistance an, a leg up, because they could get very close sometimes to the Nazis, and then they would turn and point to, hey, I'm a resistance fighter, I'm not one of you, and then they were able to approach him and kill him. And you think about they'd have, that's how close they would often have to get. So you think about how scary that must have been. This was not, you know, long-term fighting with rifles and, and tanks. My, they didn't have it, you know. So they had to go up close, and that was their advantage. And when my father saw that red and white fighting armband, Craig, he just cried, and he was holding on to it. And then he looked up, and he said, you know, I wonder who survived. I wonder who made it. And I said, you know what, Dad, the president of Poland, I, just, I had just met him literally a few weeks before, invited us back. And my father said, all right, let's go back together. And the whole, my whole life growing up, Craig, my father you know, talked about Poland as being held, that there were terrible things that happened there, and I never knew what. And I never knew what role he played or what, or what happened. But I, I never thought he would ever in, in my lifetime ever go back to Poland or his lifetime. And when he said that, I said, let's do it. And literally a few days later, I think it was, we were on a plane to Poland. And my father held my hand when we took off, you know, and, and when we landed. And it was like a child. He was so nervous. And it was, you know, there was so, it was, you know, 65 years of emotions. And he came back and got a hero's welcome from the president of Poland because he was in that die-hard fighting plot, you know, place. The guys, my father escaped through the sewers at one point from the Nazis. Can you imagine? There was no place above ground. And those fighters who escaped through the sewers, my dad was one of the last men out. They are really considered some of the real heroes in Poland. Here's a guy that, that spent an entire lifetime, Rita, um, controlling his emotions, denying it, yes. stuffing them down. Uh, suddenly now he finds himself, 60-plus years later, back to his home country of Poland. Um, I would suspect that, that Stalag, Stalag 4B probably doesn't exist anymore, but there are prison camps that have, that have been kept open for tourists to come and see and for people to, to basically experience that we should never forget. You had an opportunity to tour one of those camps, Auschwitz, yes, in Poland with your father. What was that like for him? Uh, you know, as a journalist, you must have been watching very intently your father's reactions to the experience of going back in and, and the memories that must have just been flooding so much emotion to the surface for him. Oh, it's so many emotions. And, and in fact, Stalag 4B, some of it is still there, and some of the record books are there. Really? And we found record books of my father there and also another camp that he was at. So we actually sent crews over to Germany where that camp was. And uh, in, in Poland, where Auschwitz is, my father actually had relatives who were taken to Auschwitz. Because early on, most people don't realize Auschwitz originally was for resistance fighters. And so my father knew a number of people who were taken to this horrible place called Auschwitz, you know, in the early days, and they didn't know really what was going on. You know, they didn't see the people or they came back vegetables and would never speak again. And so when my father went there, uh, we were speechless. It, and my father, the minute he walked into some of the barracks that are still standing there, and it is such a somber feeling to go to Auschwitz because it's huge. And the fact that it's still there and still huge and that that's not all of it, it's overwhelming to the emotions. They're just so angry about man's inhumanity to man and, and what happened. And my father, we walked through a barrack, and he said, this is exactly like the bed I was in. Because the, the Germans had everything was very uniform, and what they used in one camp was very similar to what they used in other camps like my dad's. And it brought back all these emotions. And th the other thing my dad also did was we went to a place in Warsaw, 
where my father said he lost all emotion. And my father, in the middle of the fighting, and remember, they barely had any guns. They had two guns in their unit. One of them was my dad's, and he barely had any bullets in it. Everything was scarce. And my father had gotten wind through some other guys that there was a tank that was seized by the resistance, a German tank, which is a, a huge coup. We remember, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, and suddenly they get a German tank. And my father's girlfriend was going to run all over the tank and you know parade on the tank, and along with a lot of his comrades. And my father said, oh, there's something kind of fishy. This is a little too good to be true. And he gave his girlfriend his Luger and said, just take this. This is his gun. Just take this, just in case. And he walked away. He was heading back in another direction, went a few blocks. And suddenly the ground shook, and the tank exploded. Mm. Booby-trapped. It was booby-trapped, and everybody on the, on the tank was killed. 500 people were killed. It was taken to a busy town square. 800 were injured. There's now a huge marker there in Poland symbolizing what happened. And my father ran back, looking for a piece of his friends. <laughs> and my father said, this is in the middle of fighting still. And he ran back, and he said when he went there, there was no trace of anything course nothing of his friends nothing of his girlfriend nothing of his luger everything was evaporated and he was just walking there in rivers of blood and my father said at that moment he said he had to compartmentalize he had to be able to keep fighting because he wanted to keep fighting for those who had just perished for his country and he said i had to block it out and when we went back to the scene together my father just broke down in tears craig it was so emotional for me and he looked up at me and said, I'm so sorry. He said, I did the best I could as a father. I tried, but at the, after this moment, I had no emotion in life. Nothing fazed me. And losing a family, you know, decades later, I couldn't be affected because I lost hundreds of friends in an instant. And, you know, and of course, I said, I, I forgive you, Dad. And, and that was a very dramatic moment for me and a very powerful moment. And, and after that moment, I have broken through with my dad. My dad is truly a different man today than he was, you know, years ago. Indeed so, and that, that takes us back full circle to that observation by you know, fellow um, television journalist uh, Tom Brokaw. This indeed was uh, our greatest generation. Rita, thanks so much for the book and the time and the insights. And um, for your dad, uh, when you talk to him next, uh, again, thanks to him. Uh, he may not regard himself as a hero, but he's a, the, a hero in the eyes of many of us. Thank you so much. And, and I hope everybody gets the book. It's quiethero.org, quiethero.org, and it's Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past. And, and I hope it, uh, the journey inspires everyone as much as it's inspired my dad and I. Undoubtedly so. Again, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby. The book, Quiet Hero. More information on the web at quiethero.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.